Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This time from Hawaii. I'll be speaking with John DeFries, the CEO of the Hawaii Tourism Authority, on how America's 50th state actually navigated covid and what their road to recovery is really going to be. Most importantly, his battle to maintain the history, culture, and tradition of the islands when the state's economy depends almost entirely on tourism. That's a challenge. Then I'll hit the beach with legendary surfer Jamie O'Brien and talk about the surf culture that propels him back to the water every single day and what most visitors to the islands don't know but need to know before they try to hang 10. And then on a much more serious note, I'll speak with Jessica Munoz to talk about an often overlooked and understood dark side of tourism, child trafficking. Jessica runs Ho'ola Napua, an amazing nonprofit that works with and then shelters abused and trafficked children all over Hawaii. It's an organization very much needed. Child trafficking is a huge international problem, and in Hawaii as well, where the average age of a trafficked child is just 11. First up, with a true report on Aloha Spirit, John DeFries. Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. Over on, uh, on Kauai. Yeah. 
Unbelievable. Well, so much has happened here. Uh, I've been coming to Hawaii longer than that because, as you may know, and if you don't, my my relatives are Hawaiian. And, I knew that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I, I had the luxury and, and the opportunity to come over here and, and almost see it like a local. Uh, but let's let's go back now about two and a half years. The rocky road that we were all on. Hawaii was the most restricted state in America in terms of being locked down. Um, I mean, getting in here took time. Staying here took time. Getting out took time. Um, and, and dedication because of, and it's the same thing. I, I looked at myself in the, in the uh, pandemic as it related to Hawaii as illegal fruit because it's the same principle. You didn't want anything coming in and basically you shut down. But that also gave you time to rethink um, and figure out, okay, where do you want to take tourism forward in a state that depends almost entirely on your GDP on tourism? So let's go a couple of months before COVID. We end calendar year 2019, banner year in terms of visitor arrivals. And, right? and a growth pattern is even to get oh, bigger. 10.4 million um, visitor expenditures, around 17.8 billion, a little over 2 billion in state tax revenue, right? So you end 2019 that way, and six months later, arrivals are hovering around zero, right? And so that that drastic ex- experience um, created a, um, for a local resident, there was om- it was almost euphoric, right? The, no traffic, the beaches were empty, the parks were empty, right? And, and so f- um, as a local guy, I was euphoric about it. I, standing in the middle of Kalakaua, 9 p.m., not a moving vehicle. of course, the main drag in Waikiki. In Waikiki. Yeah. And, and not a moving vehicle in either direction. And it actually felt a little eerie, like a movie set, right? But what we also knew was this was going to be short-lived. It was, um, this was not sustainable. And uh, the economic collapse that accompanied that drop in tourism, um, you knew there were a lot of families that were uh, being injured financially, emotionally, and all of the above, right? So uh, the governor of the state of Hawaii, I have to tell you, took a lot of uh, heat and a lot of criticism for putting stringent uh, programs and restrictions in place. Uh, But I think he understood that we needed to make that sacrifice to keep the community healthy and in turn evolve out of it at some point and and have a healthy destination and and so um, you know kudos to him and and the four mayors uh, who had to toe the line on that so it was tough it was real tough real tough and then finally towards the end of March not too long ago the mask requirement went away uh, the uh, quarantine r- restrictions went away and in the meantime. All the airlift returned, and then some. And then some. And, and uh, airlift, and what was amazing about it, especially the last nine months, uh, the, the U.S. market has primarily driven this, right? Um, our second major market, Japan, has yet to become fully unlocked, right? And we are probably heading there in mid to late summer, uh, where we'll start to see it. So the, the airlift has been um, phenomenal, 
as you pointed out, surpasses where we were at 2019. But I would also express a caution that that other global destinations, as they become healthier and and return to compete in the market, um, my sense is you'll you'll start to see that level off uh, somewhat. So, of course, in the law of supply and demand, for so many travelers now who are desperate to come to Hawaii, they it's pent up demand. I don't have to tell you about. And at least in the short term, money's not that doesn't seem to be a problem. The hotels are getting ridiculously high rates, but people are paying them. You know, I get uh, questioned a lot about that from the tourism authority, and and this pent up demand, the term we use commonly, right? It it really has a lot to do with the connection people feel to these islands, you know. And um, you've been coming here long enough. Thank you for reminding me. So, yeah, so, so you understand what that connection about. It's very personal, right? And uh, for the newcomer or the one that's been here year after year, um, the pandemic kind of put us under house arrest. And now that we're, we've been liberated, uh, we're going to go to the places that we feel connected to, either through our imagination or from you know, past experiences. So at this point, at least in the short term, it's not about the cost as much as it is the value. Correct. Now, that will change. You know that. That will change. That will change. And, again, global competition um, will cause the market to adjust. And during this two-and-a-half-year period, and we all went through this in various levels, in various locations, various income levels, various socioeconomic strata, people had a chance to reset, to rethink, to reevaluate their lot in life, their salary, their lifestyle, their quality of living. We saw the great migration. You had a lot of people moving here. You know, we did. And, and especially those that are tech savvy, that, that can function and operate uh, uh, virtually. And, and we saw that. But I think what we also saw is people beginning to place value on their own personal growth too, because what, I, what I'm encountering more today are people looking for more meaning in their experiences and more authenticity in it. And so I think in that sense, um, Hawaii is kind of on its way to having to reinvent itself and rediscover itself and, um, and move out of this, this mass market um, tendencies that we have developed over time, and um, and and return to what I would refer to as the art of kamaina hospitality. You know, that's much more personal, much more engaging, much more old school, much more old school, yeah, much more old school. But you know, if, if we go back to what was topic A and topic B before the pandemic, it was two things: over tourism not just Hawaii, on a global scale, over-tourism and sustainability. Correct. Well, we're back addressing both now, aren't we? You know, both, and especially when you live on an island, right? Sustainability can be measured relatively quickly. I mean, the health of your reef, the health of your watershed, the health of your forest, all of that. And so, um, you know, I've said uh, to a number of people that um, we're on our way, in my mind, to 
uh, evolving into what the Hawaiians of old referred to as a kapu system, which was uh, certain times of the year you couldn't be in this coastal area, you couldn't consume this fish, you couldn't cut this tree, right? They were self-regulating. They were self-regulating, and and they were living a regenerative lifestyle, right? Because uh, it wasn't so much about depriving humans from that as much as it was recognizing that that life form needed an opportunity to propagate and regenerate and reproduce. And, and frankly, if we're going to do tourism at this scale, uh, we're going to have to evolve that kind of an awareness and that higher consciousness because uh, we're going to want it here in greater supply three generations from now than we have it today. And in fact, you may not have a choice. That's right. I mean, that's really, that's really the, the real challenge, yep. is not just addressing the problem, but moving forward on it. Correct. And John, you had that two and a half years to identify the problems that you sort of knew beforehand that then got accelerated, and you now have the opportunity, now that you've identified them, to for, sort of like refocus the direction that you're going. You talk about old school. Old school hospitality, deeper immersion into culture, less less in terms of the, the usual suspects, if you will. How do you do that? You know, in calendar year 2019, the Hawaii Tourism Authority embarked on an island-by-island island series of convenings and inviting diverse circles of people from that community to address the issues related to over-tourism. And that resulted in a new strategic plan, which was adopted January 2020 by HDA. Just in time for the pandemic. Just in time for the pandemic. Four pillars, Hawaiian culture, natural resources, community, and branding, global branding. Um, Offspring to that is a program called Destination Management Action Plans. So every island now has a plan that was co-designed by this diverse circle of people. And HTA uh, has the role of facilitator, convener, and really um, a place of neutrality that allows that community to give definition to what a future model of tourism would look should look like on their island, one that is sustainable, okay? And, um, you know, viewers can get to that uh, those plans on our website, uh, but I will tell you that the, the first thing we did that I thought was imp- an imperative was to give the community the voice that it needs to engage with this community and help, help provide some direction. Not easy, a task to do. We're in the midst of an implementation phase annually for each of the next three years. Right. And uh, making substantial progress in that. But, area. you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword, right? Sure. You have... The, the need for economic growth and revenue. And at the same time, you don't want to destroy it in the process of getting there. And with all due respect, and I'm not sounding like I'm some sort of a cynical elitist, but I don't want to do another luau. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Sure. Um, I don't want to buy another T-shirt. I don't want to... Um, I mean, and, I'm, and this is nothing to be said against people who tell T-shirts or do luau's, but there's got to be a different way to do it. You know, it's a, that's a great example because, um, you know, one fantasy I have, and at the moment I, I refer to it as a fantasy because we need to find a way to operationalize it. But imagine if I was able, we were able as uh, the authority 
to help facilitate local families who are identified, trained, certified to do a luau equivalent for 10 people or at less. At their house. At their home. There you go. Okay. And and uh, people could Uber or, or take a lift, bring their own bottle of wine, and then th- that evening would have... It's talk story time. It would be talk story time. Explain. It, I know what it is. Explain right. talk story. Talk story is really kind of a free-flowing, no-agenda um, stream of consciousness um, and, and meaningful exchanges, right? So it's conversations. It is conversation. And imagine an evening of a, a home-cooked meal, cultural stories, storytelling, so that the local family is learning as much from the visitor as the visitor is from them, right? Music, of course, dance. Um, my, now, imagine that happening in 300 homes three times a week. Right, so you got so that three thousand people are having a more immersive experience and decentralized, and we're not, you know, and and in my mind, our ability to provide whether it's a luau or whether it's a fishing trip or whether it's surfing lessons, right? There's a way, or to, even a picnic at Ala Moana. Oh, there's a way to do it that is more, you know, less. Um, corporate in that sense. Um, and then in that way, the community begins to feel like it owns the industry. It has a stake in it that's measurable in addition to a second income flow into the home. Plus, you're going to learn stories you never knew before. Listen, if you gave my mother $250 times 10, <laughs> that'd be about 60% on the bottom line. And, and, well, <laughs> and you wouldn't be able to shut her up. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but, no. but that, it's, it's an important point because it's not just Hawaii, it's travel in general. Sure. You know, now the guys who operate the tour buses and the guys who operate the big high-rise hotels, they may not buy in on that, though. Yeah, you know, and, and um, we're going to have to be sensitive to that. I mean, there are um, substantial investments that have been made. But I will say this, that when you start looking at it from a sustainable lens or a regenerative lens... The asset value of these major hotels, it's in their interest as well to be looking at this generationally, right? Sure. And, and because the long-term value increasing um, is related to the fact that the community is at peace with the industry, supporting the industry, and, and creating kind of the hospitable destination Hawaii needs to be. My thanks to John. If you want to know where the waves are, and perhaps most important, what they mean, the man to see is Jamie O'Brien. He's a legendary professional surfer, and yes, a thrill seeker who has the broken bones to prove it. But then again, nothing has kept him out of the water. This episode is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers. Huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes, and your tushies do too. That's why Huggies is the number one best-fitting diaper with its curved and stretchy fit and 12-hour protection against leaks. No matter what kind of butt you've got, you'll feel comfy while your baby's mushy little tushy wiggles and jiggles all around. Get your baby butt in the best-fitting diaper. Huggies Little Movers. We got you, baby. Guess what you're about to tell me, Jamie, is anybody who wants to surf can surf. 
Yes. I mean, here at Jamie O'Brien Server Experience is, is our motto is you sign up for a lesson, we can guarantee you you're going to be surfing by the end of your lesson. Standing up? Standing up. Seriously? Yeah. We got you covered. Show up and let's make this happen. <laughs> but my experience on the North Shore, I have to tell you, I first learned how to surf in Hawaii in, in Sandy Bay with my uncle, who was a legendary surfer out here, David Rockland, and who, who uh, I mean, his whole family, my whole relatives are all surfers. So I, I learned from the best, and I thought I knew what I was doing. And then I said, oh, you know what, I'm going to go to the North Shore and check out Sunset. Uh, you know the answer to what happened to me there. Yeah. I mean, I took one wave. That was one and done. Uh, and as my face was planted on the sand, with sand in every orifice of my body, I said, okay, the gods have sent me a message, not going back out. <laughs> well, it's one of those things, right? It's like, that's the thing we're trying to teach you here at Jamie O'Brien Surf Experience is like how to understand and read the waves and, you know, make sure that you're going into a comfort area. Because we don't want to scare people. We want to open up an avenue for people to fall in love with surfing and fall in love with just being in the ocean. That's our whole goal. I mean, you've been around water all your life. Your dad was a lifeguard, right? When did you learn how to surf? I learned how to surf when I was three years old, and it's actually kind of an interesting story. So my dad took me out at Holiva Beach Park, which is um, about like seven miles from Turtle Bay, and it was probably the worst thing he could have done. He scared me, but I recovered since then. Uh, we took off on the wave. I was on the front of the longboard, and we were going straight towards the rocks, and I was like, I just started crying. I was freaking out. I thought I was going to crash into the rocks. My dad had it all under control, but in my mind, I thought we were going to crash right into the rocks, and um, yeah, that was like my first experience of surfing. Now, you mentioned a longboard. That was the old wooden boards, right? Yeah, it was. Oh, no, actually, it was a um, massive uh, longboard. Uh, it was it was foam, but it was like it was still like 40, 50 pounds. I, mean, I remember the lifeguards. It was like a full like part of their daily exercise routine to get that thing like down to the beach. Because I when I learned how to surf, it was on a on a, a real mahogany wooden board that weighed 140 pounds. Yeah. And I don't understand at the age of 12 how I even carried it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just a, a thing in its own, you know, that's just, that's the purity of surfing. And when people had to cut down trees and shape a board by hand and then take it out into the ocean and ride it. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the beginning and birthplace of surfing right there. Now there's one thing to surf or learn how to surf in Waikiki. It's pretty calm. It's another thing to learn how to surf out here. Yeah, I mean, it is it is another thing to learn how to surf, but it's like anything, right? You know, you, you'd like to start on a user-friendly wave, which we got right here at Turtle Bay. And there's plenty of other places that have user-friendly waves. But when you show up to the North Shore in the middle of the winter and the waves are <laughs> pounding, this ocean is relentless. It is not going to hold back. You just got to be careful on where you surf. So it's always good to, you know, ask a lifeguard, ask a friend, or, you know, just... Make that right decision for yourself. Okay, define for me a user-friendly wave. A user-friendly wave is something that, you know, has similar features to a rolly wave like Waikiki. The only thing that's not user-friendly about Waikiki is, is there's hundreds and thousands of people in the water. That's what makes Turtle Bay a really fun user-friendly wave because, you know, not only is that there's only one surf school, which is us, allowed to operate on property of this 1,200 acres, we also have uh, multiple different waves. We have a wave down the way called Cavella Bay. It's really user-friendly, and if the waves are 25 feet, we're still surfing this perfect little wave that's just so user-friendly for our guests. And what's, uh, you started at three. Are you, are you actually teaching people who are three years old now? Yeah. 
I was I was just out with a, a young one the other day. It's like you know the 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 age the age gap is. I mean, there's no age gap. It's just like you know we're teaching you know three year olds how to surf, and we're teaching you know seventy eighty year old people how to surf. And the whole thing is like we're getting them up, and they're just having the blast, and they're just falling in love with surfing. And I think at the end of the day, it's like to give the gift to someone of surfing. To me, it's the ultimate goal. Right. They can get up with you. The real question is, can they get up without you? Yeah, they could get up without me, but they, they need us a little. <laughs> <laughs> a little coaching, you know, like, you know, a little uh, strategy that we work on the beach before we get them out there, certain techniques that you need to apply. And, you know, we have a lot of great listeners. And once we get them out there, we get them up and riding. But then there's something else that's going on here. You've taken it, at least the resort's taken it to a new level. You surf with a dog. Yeah, so so there's an activity here on property. It's actually not our activity under Jamie O'Brien's surf experience umbrella. But my buddy Rocky Cannon, I grew up with Rocky here on the North Shore. He surfs Pipeline. He's done it all. Well, before we get to that, Pipeline's your favorite, right? Pipeline's my favorite, yeah. Why? So, well, because... I grew up looking up to guys like Jerry Lopez, Jock Sutherland, and all these guys that pioneered Pipeline. And Pipeline is the most deadly, dangerous wave in the world, hands down, still to this day. Even bigger than the ones I've seen in Tahiti? Yes. And Portugal? Unfortunately, there's been a lot of lives lost at Pipeline. These other waves, it's not, it's not the same. What the one off, what's about the one off Monterey in California? No, this is the one. That's Mavericks. Mavericks right. Mavericks is known to take a few lives as well, but there's just something about Pipeline and, and just there's so many people that are just trying Pipeline and, and sometimes, you know, it's it's deadly. And So basically you are a risk taker. I'm a high risk taker. On the days of days, I'm out there risking my life and it's just something, it's just, it's so rewarding though. You go out there and you conquer your fears. You get some insane waves. and, and Give uh, me an idea of what, what an insane wave is at Pipeline. An insane wave at Pipeline is you see the massive set loading up on the outside reef, you know, and, and you could probably see it for like a minute or two before you actually even catch it. So the anticipation of actually catching this wave is building and building and building. And then you got to look around the lineup and you're like, okay, who's going to try and catch this wave? Whose turn is it? Are they going to understand it if it's my turn? And then you got to kind of play this like crowd trick where you're like trying to out position other people in the crowd and hopefully it's your wave and you start palling for this wave and it starts loading up on the reef and it's basically about to hit this shelf. The water level is going to go from like, you know, 20 feet to 10 feet and when the wave that's hit, a drop that's yeah. a drop yeah so when the wave hits that shelf the wave jacks up and you got to be paddling super hard and the wind's blowing up the face and you start to take this drop and the best way i could explain it to someone is it's like going to the water park and going down the vertical water slides where you lose that sense of feeling of gravity you know it, it just you just start falling and then you, it falls out from under you yeah it falls out from under you but then you you connect it at the bottom at a smooth transition you pull up and to the barrel you're cranking super hard in your rail at any moment you're like if i fall i could potentially be in big trouble um you make the drop you're cruising through the wave starts barreling then you're like all right i gotta get out of this barrel but the vision inside once it kind of like hypnotizes you like want to stay in this barrel the view like this is the ultimate goal of surfing is to get in this big beautiful barrel and it does this thing we call spit and it just it just starts squirting out like a blowhole or like a like a I don't even know like a fire hose and it and before it blows out of the barrel it sucks in it does like just some weird pressure trip and it just starts pushing and blowing and it turns it it goes from like 
being in this barrel with this beautiful view to just a whiteout. It's like you cannot see anything and the, the, the water is going so fast. It's stinging your back and your eyes. And then it just, you end up like in the channel coming out of this barrel and you're like, oh my God, I just came out of the barrel. And then you just, you paddle back out and your buddy goes, what just happened? You're like, I don't know, dude, it was crazy. <laughs> see, at, at what, at about seven different points during your description of that, I was already in the hospital. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, and, and for me, right. Surfing pipeline has been very interesting. Um, you know, it's a place that I wanted to make a career out of it. Uh, when I, at the young age of 21, I won the pipeline masters. It's the most prestigious surfing contest into the world, in the world still to this day. Um, and just being a part of it, you know, comes along with a lot of injuries. You know, I've broken my right leg going right on the same wave of pipeline. They, they, if you go right, it's called backdoor. If you go left, it's pipeline. I don't know why they just figured that out. But I broke my le- I broke my right leg going right up uh, backdoor. I broke my left leg going left at pipeline. Slammed into the reef. My foot went into a cave. Uh, the wave pulled me over the cave. My foot snapped in the in the my leg snapped in the hole in the reef and the lava and like. I hit my head multiple times unconscious, didn't even know where I was. I was paddling out to the middle of the sea. The guy's like, hey, you got to, where, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going back out there, you know, like, took in some, you know, pretty, pretty gnarly injuries. But you keep going back. I keep going back. But this year, I took a couple of really bad wipeouts. I almost, I felt like I almost might have broke my back. And I was, I was definitely pretty injured for a minute there. And I just kind of clicked and I was like, you know what? We're surfing the most dangerous wave in the world. I'm going to wear a helmet. Are you wearing a helmet now? I'm wearing a helmet now on the bigger days. <laughs> I just love this life. And I'm like, if I one hit to your head, you're done. Yeah, you know? And like, I'm like, the wave we're surfing, it is violent. It will pick you up and throw you over the falls. And you, yeah, you'll hit a little bit of water, but sometimes it's straight reef. All right. I'm calling your friend Rocky. I'm going with the dog. Yeah. My thanks to Jamie. Hawaii may be America's paradise, but for a growing number of local children, it can also be a hell. It's perhaps the dark side of tourism, child trafficking, an international problem that often finds its way to tourism destinations, in many cases because of child prostitution. Jessica Munoz was an emergency room nurse in Hawaii who kept seeing cases of injured young children being brought into hospitals, and she quickly discovered the reasons why. And she then made it her mission to start a therapeutic center to help shelter and then treat these kids and help them prepare to re-enter society in a healthy and supportive way. She's a one-woman band who now runs Ho'olanapua, and she's always happy to show visitors, like me and even you, around, as well as to show us the ways we can help wherever or whenever we're traveling. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I mean, you know, people think of Hawaii as just like a vacation destination. They're going to go and have a great time at the resort, which is fine. They're going to have their... You know, their ration of pina coladas and all of that thing. But in this particular community, right, Hawaii is one of the leading states for child trafficking. Yes, we have a significant challenge here in our islands, which we all adore and are absolutely beautiful. But every single day, there are children all over our state that are bought and sold for sex. And when you first came over here, I'm sure you didn't really know about that as much. Because you were, but then you were working in an emergency room. You're a nurse, and you see these kids come in, and pretty soon it became clear to you, they they just didn't stub their toe. Absolutely, and it was 
really at the time in 2009, no one was really talking about this, even across the country. We were not talking about American children being bought and sold every single day. It was an Asian problem. Yes, it was not a domestic problem. But, you know, here's the news bulletin. Hawaii is a U.S. state. That's right. (laughs) And children have rights. That's right. However, they weren't being protected. No, they were not. And at the time, we were actually arresting kids for prostitution. 11, 12, 13 years old. So instead of being seen as the victim of a crime, you were often treated as the criminal. So how were you able to turn things around? One conversation at a time. Uh, I don't have a lot of fear. Uh, I cold called uh, the chief justice and the head of family court almost 13 years ago and said, look, I believe we have this population of children that exists between our juvenile justice and child welfare system. And they're sort of lost in the system. And they're falling through the cracks and they need a unique intensive response. And our entire community, our state system has to shift so that we're recognizing, identifying, intervening and responding and ultimately elevating them to places of healing and recovery. I'm going to assume something and you tell me if I'm wrong, but in a state where the GDP is so dependent on travel and tourism for revenue, for jobs, for everything else, I would think that this subject was a victim itself of benign ignorance. It was, absolutely. And I think in the last three years um, prior to the pandemic, we really started to see a shift. And we saw Hawaii Tourism Authority, Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Authority, um, Outrigger Hotels, and others start to come behind us and say, hey, we want to make our community safer. And so we actually held a statewide symposium. So we've been able to elevate the conversation, decrease the stigma, and help people see that you don't have to be afraid of this issue, but you have to be willing to talk about it and recognize it. You had to educate the hoteliers, yes, the businesses that were travel related, the tour operators, mm-hmm. the airlines, everybody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because it is all one relationship and uh, kids and young adults end up in these systems and in these places and they're being victimized and not recognized. Now, part of this had to be a, a, a serious component part, had to be training. Because it's one thing to like educate them, at least to make them aware But if you don't train them, you're not accomplishing anything. Absolutely. Got to train them how to identify and who to call, right? Well, let's let's talk about, okay, let's train me for a second, right? I'm at an airport and I see an adult with a child, not an unusual sight, right? But what would be an alert for you? What would be a tip-off? Um, If the child looked like they were being controlled, they weren't maintaining eye contact, they were constantly looking down, if they had one or two cell phones that they're holding in their hand, um, that he might seem clearly they're not related or might be significantly older than her um, or him. Boys are trafficked too. Um, And uh, another sign could be that they have a backpack and maybe most of their belongings with them. You... I always tell people there is a sense that comes over you when you see this. And if you recognize that and just say something, whether you're right or wrong, at least you said something. It's like you get that gut sense that like something is not right here. But of course, the training has to go both ways because the person you're going to say it to has has to to be prepared as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's still an ongoing process, isn't it? It is. It is. There are so many layers of training, educators healthcare professionals, people in tourism. I mean, anyone could come in contact with a victim of exploitation. We were talking about, you know, what people need to know and then speak up about it. But then 
There's the education process, and then there's the immersion process for people who might want to get involved in, and volunteer. Tell me more about the, the facility that you run, and, and how does it work? So we have multiple community-based programs. We actually operate a mentoring program. We have a group resiliency program. We do in-school education, community advocacy, and then we just build a state-of-the-art residential treatment center where underage girls are provided with comprehensive treatment and care. It's actually a live-in facility. And so we... Um, garner multiple volunteers every single year who have come in and done specialty classes, courses. Um, we've had people do yard projects. Um, we've had people plant things. We Teachers, have, educators. Yep, yep, and people from a variety of backgrounds um, as a way to give back. Um, we have amazing supporters who from around the world actually have come to see the work that we do and have um, offered generous support through whether it's time, talent, or treasure. And um, so we're really thankful for that because that is how, I mean, this really started one conversation at a time. Is there an average of the age of these girls? So our average age kids in the state of Hawaii, our trafficked is 11. Well, the rest of the country is 14. So our kids are young. So it happens earlier. Mm -hmm. It does. It does. Because I've seen other facilities that are working with a little bit older group mm -hmm. to almost do a vocational work with them as well so that they can go back into the workplace yeah. when, they be, when they're old enough. Mm -hmm. Are you doing any of that kind of work? So we do. For our older youth, um, especially in our treatment program, our girls that are 17, almost 18 years old, we do a lot of skills training. Uh, we help them get their GED, help them graduate from high school, help them go on to community college. Um, we have transitioned age youth that, and we have girls that are now married with kids and thriving and doing wonders. Um, and you've been doing this how long? 13 years. Wow. 13 years. <laughs> I, I bet you never thought this would, would be what you do. Never. I delivered babies and put in chest tubes and sutured people. I had no idea that I was going to do this. Yeah. Wow. And how do you involve the hotels? How do you involve the travel industry in this? So what's been amazing is they've come around us, not only just as financial supporters and sponsors, um, they've come to some of our events. They've helped um, host trainings given us the opportunity to elevate our message. Um, and we've also had them actually come out and do some volunteer work at our facility. Um, we've had some of them actually get trained as mentors for some of our young people. So that's that's been... And there's also a possibility of a pipeline as a job. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And so actually we're looking at building some internship opportunities and other things like that. Now, you, you know, you talk about getting the message out to just people like myself, but you also have to get the message out to law enforcement to change their focus too. Absolutely. So one of the big focuses I've had is educating law enforcement around a trauma-centered, victim-centered response. Because they're the first contact, yes. right? Yes. They bring them in. Yes. Yes. And understanding not only the victimization, but how um, when a child is found or recovered from a trafficking situation, a lot of times these kids are brainwashed. Right. And so coming at it from an approach that this is a child who's been heavily victimized and abused. And, and they think it's all their fault. Right. And so we really have had to shift. And I, I am so proud of our partnership. So we actually have a federal partnership with Homeland Security Investigations of Honolulu, which is the first uh, national partnership that HSI has had across the country. So we work with them. We provide victim advocacy. And I'm sure that what keeps you going is... You have success stories. I do. 
I do. I've watched kids go from being completely shut down and wanting to end their life to now thriving, going to community college, having babies, having their own families. But it all started with creating a safe space for them to start healing and to start connecting to something that's healthy. And that takes time. And that takes an incredible amount of time. And, you know, I think that for travelers that go all over the world, I mean, it's been shown that if you take the time to invest in girls and young women, communities thrive, economies thrive. And so, you know, we want to keep the Aloha spirit moving forward. These girls, these young adults, these are the next generation. And we have to elevate them. We have to hear their voices because they have been under such significant oppression for so long. So for folks listening to the show who may be thinking of coming to Hawaii, let's hear the website. It's www.hoolanapua.org. My thanks to Jessica, to Jamie O'Brien, and to John DeFreeze. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast from Oahu. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com/survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. And to ask Jeff some questions, because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.